Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried to How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of it? Mean Mr. Mullins by Kathy Sahu. The old man can't last much longer at the rate he's going, Dr. Chisholm said on his way out. By those latest blood gas results, he should be dead already. Though he's fooled me before. He's been at the brink of death more than once, only to rally at the last hour. Melanie stood at the wide oak doorway of the old mansion, trying to look calm and not show how scared she was to see the doctor going, leaving her alone again with that awful old man, her patient. The doctor had always been friendly enough to her, but he was a busy man and had no time to give advice. And after all, it wasn't his fault if she had taken on more than she could handle. Melanie wasn't a certified nurse yet, she was merely a cheaper substitute. But this fall... She hoped to start classes for her RN, and complaining about a weak old man's behaviour, however inappropriate that behaviour was, would not be a propitious way to start out her new career. So, she was resolved to say nothing. Not that you should let it bother you, the doctor added over his shoulder as he hurried down the stairs to his Mercedes. If what I hear about the old buzzard is true, he hasn't given you or anyone else reason to mourn his passing. She watched the doctor's car disappear down the roadway back to town, and then she turned reluctantly back to the house, feeling a little guilty, because the doctor had thought she was sad about Mr. Mullins dying. She didn't feel that way at all. She guessed she should feel bad. He was kin after all. But the fact was that she didn't. Going back into the dark old house, though, and shutting the heavy door behind her did make her feel like crying. The doctor's visit so quickly over was the one bright spot in the long, leaden day. He wasn't afraid of Mr. Mullins, nor did he seem at all affected by the gloom that hung so heavily over the place. Cheerful, confident and loud, Dr. Chisholm brought in a breath of fresh air from the outside world. He made Mr. Mullins seem, by contrast, not so large and looming, made him appear what he really was, a very frail, very sick old man. Mr. Mullins was docile during Dr. Chisholm's visits. He looked like he wouldn't hurt a fly. The housekeeper, before she had been sent away, had told Melanie that Mr. Mullins behaved so well towards Dr. Chisholm because he was afraid of the doctor's temper, which was legendary in the community. He once had a nurse dismissed for answering him back during a crisis in the emergency room, and he could be just as ruthless with his patients. If you didn't follow his orders, or even complain too much, he refused to treat you and no one wanted to risk having that happen, because he was the best doctor in town. Every day, after the doctor left, Melanie would try to adopt his hearty and impervious manner, though it didn't come naturally to her at all. Now she resolutely climbed the stairs to her patient's room and said, in what she hoped was a no-nonsense voice, Mr Mullins, it's time for your protein drink. Mr Mullins was always in either one of two moods, good or bad. For Melanie, his good mood was worse than his bad because when in a bad mood, he simply insulted and berated her and she could get away relatively quickly. But when he was in a good mood, he liked her company. He thought up reasons to keep her in the room and then, of course, there were the little tricks he liked to play. My protein drink, Mr Mullins cackled jovially. Just what I need to give me a little boost where I need it most, although I'm sure, my dear, 
He leered as Melanie poured the contents of a very expensive little can into a tumbler. That your presence is as much of a stimulant as any red-blooded male could handle. So, he was in a good mood this afternoon. He had fished around for reassurance from Dr. Chisholm that his condition wasn't hopeless, and when the doctor had made vague reference to some possibly encouraging exam results, Mr. Mullins had found reason to rejoice. But he could only take a few sips of his protein drink before his stomach was full. When Melanie came back to take away the glass, he said in a teasing voice, I have a little surprise for you. She quailed to hear these words, but turned and waited. Don't you want to know what it is? The old man wheezed out, seemingly disappointed by her lack of enthusiasm. Now here was the sort of thing that drove Melanie to distraction. Of course she didn't want to know what it was. She didn't want any presents from him. But if she told him that, she'd never hear the end of it. And if she said she did want to know, he'd spend the next fifteen minutes making her play guessing games. You don't want to know what it is, he repeated, fairly yelling this time. I don't know, she said miserably. You don't know, Mr Mullins repeated. You don't know. You're a quick thinker, aren't you, nursey? Bet you just did great at school. Don't know why I'm subsidising you when you can't even answer a simple yes or no question. Well, can you? he asked after a pause. Can I what? Melanie asked. Answer a simple yes or no question. I guess so, Melanie replied. Well then, Mr Mullins continued, smiling excitedly. I've got a little something for you. Do you want it or not? Uh, yes, said Melanie. I guess so. Put your hands under the covers, then. Melanie stared at the wizened old man. It was true that he often made lascivious jokes, but she had never had to worry about him actually doing anything before. Go ahead. Put your hands under the covers, he gurgled, and feel around. Melanie was sure that a more experienced nurse would never let herself be put in this position, but how to get out of it? If she refused, Mr Mullins would keep bothering her about it. If she said it was improper, he'd accuse her of having a dirty mind, and that would supply him with ammunition indefinitely. Melanie felt her face getting red. Soon, Mr Mullins would notice and start teasing her about that. She figured she had just better get it over with as soon as possible, and started feeling around on top of the bedspread looking for lumps. No, you idiot, Mr Mullins cried. How are you going to find anything that way? Put your hands under the covers. Awkwardly, gingerly, Melanie passed her hands between the two smooth, freshly laundered sheets. she just changed them this morning, avoiding Mr Mullins's scrawny limbs as well as she could. Was she looking for something small or big? She didn't want to ask. Mr Mullins was chuckling delightedly. Oh, Melanie cried. Something had caught her hand. She dragged it out to find her first three fingers caught in a mouse trap, fastened to the top of a tin box. They tingled painfully as she pulled them loose. Mr Mullins was wheezing with laughter as Melanie blinked back tears. Suddenly he stopped laughing. Oh dear, he cried, looking at her closely. I hope you're not hurt, are you? Those things aren't supposed to hurt, really. Melanie shook her head, her throat too tight to speak. I'm so sorry, Melanie, really I am, said Mr Mullins after looking at her penitently for several seconds. 
You know I never want to cause you any discomfort. It's just that I get so bored lying here all day, with nothing to do. It's all right, Melanie mumbled. Well, at any rate, he said cheerfully, you'll forgive me when you see what's in the box. You, you like chocolate, don't you? Uh, didn't you say that you like chocolate? Early on, before she understood Mr Mullins's personality, Melanie had made the mistake of confiding that small fact to him. Now she nodded, concentrating on keeping her composure until she could get away downstairs again. Well then, go ahead, open it, the old man said. She had trouble prying open the box because of her hurt fingers, but she knew he would insist on her trying the chocolate in front of him. She felt she couldn't stand to eat anything right now, especially not with those roomy blue eyes staring at her. But finally, she pulled the lid off. Something sprang out high over her head and then fell on her. In her nervous state, she couldn't help screaming, even though she knew before she screamed that it was just a coiled spring covered with cloth and painted to look like a snake. Mr Mullins was laughing his wheezy, choky laugh again, hunched forward in bed and holding onto his knees with his bony hands for support. Melanie picked up the cloth snake, put it with the box on the table and walked quickly out, but not before Mr Mullins saw her face all twisted up and red with incipient tears. Hey, nursey, he called out after her. Don't you want your candy? And he held up the box, at the bottom of which was one fat, dusty bonbon, its chocolate coating whitened with age. That was a great one, Mr Mullins wheezed, and for the next several minutes he alternately laughed and concentrated on getting his breath back. This is the way I want to go, he thought to himself, laughing. What a silly ninny of a girl. Real luck finding her. Most of those nurses' aides were too hard-boiled to have any fun with, and what a stroke of serendipity for her to be a relative. He had always hated his relatives, and since he had grown old, he hated young people too. Above all, he hated people who had no sense of humour. He saw it as a duty as well as a pleasure to teach people like that a lesson. Now he could spend the rest of the day savouring his victory. I almost scared her to death, he said to himself aloud, cackling again. Suddenly another brilliant idea occurred to him. Everybody thought that he was dying, which gave him the perfect opportunity. For... for what? This would take some thought and careful planning, but it would be well worth it. He had about used up his stock of rubber mice and dribble glasses, and this would be something completely different. Something simple, elegant, subtle but potent would meet the bill this time. I almost scared her to death, he repeated musingly. I wonder how close I could come to really doing it. Melanie spent the rest of the afternoon downstairs crying. She was ashamed of herself, but couldn't help it. The hurt fingers and the cloth snake scare were the least of it. She was lonely and homesick. She missed her family so much. Coming from a big one, she had never even known what loneliness felt like until now. It was horrible. But she couldn't go back home. This was her only chance for nursing school any time in the near future. She had saved up enough money for tuition and books, but there was little left over for food and lodging. Her grades, though solid, weren't good enough to qualify for a scholarship. 
and the counsellor had said the curriculum was much too heavy for students to try to work while attending classes. The family had talked it over, and finally her mother had remembered a well-to-do cousin now dead who had a surviving husband in the college town. Mother had written to him explaining the problem, and Mr Mullins had written back saying Melanie was welcome to stay at his house while attending school if she was willing to help around the house a bit in return. Once Melanie arrived, and grateful and eager to please, had shown him what a good cook she was, now careful a housekeeper, Mr Mullins had let his own housekeeper go, saying to Melanie that she would do just fine for him by herself. Melanie had felt horrible for the housekeeper, but Mrs Packard said it was all right. She would find another job with her agency soon enough, and in fact this would give her an opportunity to go for a little vacation first. I'm going somewhere where it's sunny and warm, Mrs. Packard had said. This old house is the gloomiest old tomb I've ever worked in. The one I feel sorry for is you, cooped up here all by yourself with that old devil. He's famous for his stinginess, you know. That mean old man never did anything for anybody except he could demand twice as much in return. Mrs. Packard had promised to send a postcard from the beach. Every day Melanie checked the mail. But it was always junk. For the rest of the afternoon, Mr. Mullins was quiet. He didn't call her once. And when she brought up his dinner tray, he didn't bother her at all or even leer at her, really. Usually he gloated quite a bit after he had succeeded in making her cry. But this evening, he seemed preoccupied. He didn't eat much. He told her he wasn't feeling very well. The next day, during his morning visit, he told Dr. Chisholm that he was feeling weaker. The doctor replied non-committally, but said privately to Melanie that though Mr. Mullins' signs and symptoms showed no real change from yesterday, he could be starting to go downhill. Often it's the patient who tells the doctor he's dying, not the other way round, Dr. Chisholm said, folding up his stethoscope and cramming it into his suit pocket, although I always thought that he was in denial. Luckily he's a hospice patient. He doesn't want to be hospitalised under any circumstances. So, if he starts sinking, don't you call the paramedics. Just keep him comfortable and let him go. And Dr. Chisholm drove off quickly. He was running late on his rounds. Melanie had wanted to ask if there was any reason, any excuse she could use to have someone come stay in the house with her while all this occurred. But the doctor had gone off too fast. She had already asked Mr. Mullins if her little sister could come to help with the cleaning, but he had flat out refused. Now she asked him again, and again he said no. You and I don't need anyone else around, he rasped weakly, holding on tight to her hand and looking at her with a pathetic expression. You'll stay with me to the end, won't you, sweetie? I'll make it worth your while. And then he closed his eyes. Even this much speaking seemed to wear him out now. Melanie tried to go, but he tightened his grip on her hand. She watched him, trying to catch his breath, the bones in his chest labouring. Finally, he continued, You can't leave me. You need a place to stay. Take care of me in my last moments, and you can stay here after I die. I've instructed my lawyer. And once again, he ran out of air. After a long interval, Melanie pulled her hand away, unresisted. Mr Mullins had fallen into an exhausted sleep. The next morning was cloudy again. And when Melanie tried to turn on the little light over the kitchen table, it wouldn't work. She put in another bulb, but that didn't do any good. 
and soon she realised that all the lights were out all over the house. She told Mr Mullins she would call the electric company, but he told her he had already called them to have the electricity shut off. Why? asked Melanie, more surprised and frightened for once. I can tell, the old man wheezed, blinking wearily at her. I'm not going to be here much longer. No use wasting electricity. Melanie couldn't believe what she was hearing. Maybe Mr Mullins' ability to reason was leaving him. But your oxygen equipment, she cried. It won't work without electricity. What good does all that do me, Mr Mullins said with something of his old exasperation. Then his voice became weak again and he murmured, When it's time to go, it's time to go. So there was nothing she could do except go search for candles in all the kitchen and dining room drawers. Luckily there were plenty. She made a note to order more with her grocery delivery that day. Then she tried to leave a message for Dr Chisholm's answering service. But here was another surprise. The phone was dead. Mr Mullins must have had that service cut off too. This was too much. Even though he had forbidden her to leave the house without asking him, and when she asked, he generally refused to let her go, she decided to go next door to call the doctor. The distance between the two sprawling mansions was considerable. She ran all the way, fearing that Mr Mullins might ring for her while she was gone. As she came up the neighbour's drive, two big Doberman dogs barked and growled and leaped at the fence as if they loved to get at her. The manservant who answered the door said the owners were not home. He didn't hide his suspicions that she was up to something, and made her repeat her story several times before allowing her in to use the phone. Melanie left a message and then sat, waiting awkwardly for a call back. But Dr Chisholm was off that day, and the doctor who did call back didn't seem to understand what she was talking about, nor care to waste any time trying. He ended by saying that the old man probably hadn't paid his electric bill, that there was nothing he could do about that, and that he'd pass along the note to Dr Chisholm's office nurse. The manservant escorted her out coldly, and Melanie slunk back to the house of Mr Mullins. The day was cloudy still, and the big rooms were hung with shadows. Mr Mullins didn't seem to notice the gloom. He slept with his eyes rolled back in his head most of the time now, and he was not always oriented to time and place. She could rouse him long enough to sip a little soda, but he soon fell back into a stupor. At one point, he whispered that the candles Melanie had lit made him dream he was in church. Was this his funeral service, he wanted to know. Melanie, a regular churchgoer herself, was reminded more of old horror movies than anything else. She had a terrible case of the creeps. And all that long, dark afternoon, she was constantly turning to see if someone, or something, was moving behind her, only to realise for the hundredth time that it was her own shadow moving with the flicker of the candlelight. The television no longer worked, and there were very few books in the house. Mr Mullins subscribed to no newspaper. He wanted no supper and she herself couldn't eat. As afternoon slowly told into evening, she sat down in the living room opposite the stairway and waited. Waited to see when death would make its visit. The house was silent. 
Outside, night fell, and she studied the pool of light from the candle at her elbow reflected in the black square of undraped window glass. It flickered noiselessly. The question struck her. Would she know when he was dead? Would he call her when he was about to go? Probably she should go up and sit with him. But he hadn't requested that of her, and she couldn't seem to force herself up the stairway. Darkness seemed to float down from it like smoke. Of course, if he died without calling, she would know only because he wouldn't call her. She would wait for the bell to ring, and it wouldn't. That was all. It could happen at any time. Maybe it had already. She must have fallen asleep in the big old armchair she had curled up in. She dreamt she was going up the stairs, candle in hand, to answer that tinkling summons. Upon pushing open the heavy door to his room, she found him, hunched up in his usual position, hands on knees, but this time with a face like a skull, open eye sockets, dangling jaw, white hair streaming as if stirred by the heat of a furnace. Turning towards her, he raised the bell and swung it again between skeleton thumb and forefinger, ringing again, summoning her to come closer. She awoke with a shriek. The bell was ringing. For a long while, she sat, paralysed with fear. The candle beside her, which, when she had fallen asleep, had been a full-sized taper, was now burnt down to only an inch. Other than that, there was no indication of how long she had slept, or of what hour it was. Outside it was dark, and inside dark too, and utterly quiet, except for the tinkling of the bell, which seemed to proceed from her dreams and keep her spellbound. Then, finally, it stopped. In the dead calm that followed, Melanie fervently prayed for God's help. Mr. Mullins was her patient and he was calling. She had to go up there. Mechanically reciting her prayers, she got up, found another candle and, with trembling fingers, lit it. The candlestick wouldn't stay in its socket and she had to hold it with both hands as she climbed the stairs. Unlike the way it had been in her dream, the door to Mr. Mullins's room was ajar. She entered quietly, peering around the door at the bed where she could see him lying there motionless. She stood for a moment, just looking. Two candles on the tables at either side of the bed lit up his body, wrapped up in the white sheet she had placed over him just this morning. At that time, she had carefully tucked the corners of the sheet under the mattress, but now they were pulled up and the old man's body lay swathed like a cocoon awaiting rebirth or more factually, like a corpse, neatly done up and ready for transport to the morgue. The face too was covered, and the sheet swathed tightly around the skull. The arms were close at the sides of the chest, the legs straight. How could he have done this to himself? Melanie wondered in horror. She watched the chest for signs of respiration. She could see none. At times the candles flickered and the shadows they threw on the corpse's shrouding made it look as if there was some slight spasm or movement. But longer observation showed this to be an illusion and convinced Melanie that the corpse, for corpse it must be, was completely and finally at rest. But to be sure, 
she had to touch it, unwrap one of the arms and feel the wrist for a pulse. Only then could she go find a phone and notify the doctor on call so that he would come and pronounce Mr. Mullins officially dead. She approached the bed and, finding an edge of the sheet, started tugging it slowly and carefully out from underneath the body. The weight of the body and the uneven foam rubber surface of the egg crate mattress beneath it made this difficult. She could feel her heart pounding and perspiration starting at the nape of her neck, though her hands were icy cold and trembling. That's just adrenaline, she told herself. I'm feeling panicky, but there's nothing to be afraid of, really. It's just a dead body. It can't hurt me. And in a moment I'll be out of the house. I'll walk until I find a payphone. She got the sheet on the side near her partially unravelled, enough to slide her hand down the corpse's arm to its wrist. She felt for a pulse. Suddenly, the dead hand jerked, and before she could move away, the bony fingers had grasped tightly hold of her arm. She tried desperately to tug herself loose, but the hand of Mr. Mullins would not let go. The sound of her own screaming was like a wind rushing in her ears as she saw the head and torso of the body rise, rise slowly to a sitting position. The face, though still wrapped in its shroud, turned toward her. The hand still grasped her tightly, and the body bowed forward to her in a most friendly, intimate manner. From underneath the sheeting, she heard the muffled voice of Mr. Mullins, deceased, cackling gleefully. I just rang to let you know. I'm dead. The sun had just risen. Dr. Chisholm was planning to stop by Mr. Mullins' house earlier than usual that morning. His wife wanted him to attend some silly awards luncheon given by one of her many charities. He himself was supposed to receive some ridiculous award and, in a moment of weakness, he had promised to go. Unless an emergency occurred, he would have to be there promptly at 11.45. He hoped for an emergency. A few miles from Mr. Mullins' house, he saw a girl walking quickly along the road in the opposite direction. She was hugging her bare arms, and though her eyes were directed towards the asphalt, at her feet, Dr. Chisholm could tell she was crying. The girl looked familiar. He backed the car up, and consistent with his belief that everyone owed him an explanation for everything, rolled down his window and demanded to know what the girl was doing out here so early, without a jacket. Melanie stopped but didn't say anything. Her mouth closed tight and her eyes brimming with tears. Dr. Chisholm got out of the car. What's wrong with you? he asked. I'm going home, Melanie finally sobbed. I don't want to be a nurse anymore. Enlightenment came to Dr. Chisholm. You're that girl taking care of old Mullins, aren't you? Why aren't you at the house? I can't go back there. Melanie had to squeeze the words out between sobs, but she didn't care now if he saw her cry. It was all over. He questioned her, and she tried to tell what had happened that night, but her story came out disconnectedly, in pieces. You mean you deserted your patient? You don't even know if he's dead or alive? Dr. Chisholm finally said, and before she could reply, angrily commanded her to get into the car. Melanie didn't think she had a choice, so she climbed in. Maybe when he heard the whole story, Dr. Chisholm would have her put in jail. That was okay, as long as she didn't have to go back into that house. He did drive back to the house, 
but he didn't ask Melanie to get out of the car. He went in alone. Through the open front door, Melanie could see him sprint upstairs. Several minutes passed. Melanie became calm, listening to the birds singing in the trees. When Dr. Chisholm came down again, he barked at her. Where's the housekeeper? Mr. Mullins discharged her after I came, Melanie replied. Why didn't you quit too? Melanie explained that she had never been hired, strictly speaking, but was more of a poor relation who had needed a place to stay. Dr. Chisholm didn't reply, but red-faced and tight-lipped went to the car trunk. He opened it, got something out and went back up again. Several minutes passed. When he came out the second time and opened the passenger door, he didn't berate and threaten like she had expected. Rather, he told her gently that Mr. Mullins was dead. You must have been dreaming about going up to his room and seeing him sit up, the doctor concluded. He's been dead for some time, most likely before you ran out of the house. But I deserted my patient, said Melanie in a small voice. I never should have run away. And a youngster like you should never have been left alone in a situation like this. But never mind, it's all over now, and you have nothing to feel ashamed of. Come on up now, you've got to get back on the horse. If you don't face your fears, they get blown all out of proportion. Melanie tried to back out, but finally followed Dr. Chisholm up the stairs and into Mr. Mullins's room one last time. The old man's body lay exposed, the sheets lying crumpled at the foot of the bed. Let's give him a little more dignity, Dr. Chisholm said, and he proceeded to show her how to wash and wrap up the body in preparation for it being taken away. He talked gently to her the whole time about medicine and nursing about life, and about death. You remind me of my youngest boy, he said, after seeing Melanie smile at a slight joke he'd made. Not your colouring or general appearance. He was big and stocky with red hair like mine, but he had a smile like yours, just like yours, open and generous, unsuspecting. He was never much of a scholar, took after his mother's side of the family, but he got into college on a football scholarship, which was lucky, because with two others in school at the same time, I couldn't have swung it otherwise. The doctor paused. They had finished wrapping up the body. Melanie was straightening out the room and Dr. Chisholm stood, absently trying to stuff his stethoscope into his suit pocket. Somebody played a practical joke on him once. They gave him a bottle of whiskey and bet him two hundred dollars that he couldn't drink it. He was homesick, just like you. He wanted the money to buy a plane ticket so he could come home for the long weekend that was coming up. He calculated that with his bulk he could just handle the amount of whiskey they gave him. He was never any good at math. They carried him back to his room. He died of alcohol poisoning that night. Melanie stood silent for some moments as Dr. Chisholm blinked at the carpet. Then, wordlessly, she accompanied him back to the car. Mr. Mullins would have laughed out loud if he could have. This was the most fun he had had in years. First scaring that little idiot into a screaming fit. It had been ridiculously simple. Early in the morning, before she got up, he had managed his way downstairs. There he had found the electrical service and turned off most of the breakers, leaving the circuit that served the rooms next to his open. Upstairs again, quite a haul, but worth it. He had told her to move his oxygen machine into the next room for storage. After that, he'd been able to sneak over and use it whenever he needed, without her knowing a thing. 
that set the stage, and after a suitable interval of play-acting, he had prepared himself for the final act. He wrapped himself up carefully in his own sheet, an exhausting task but well worth it, after making sure, of course, to place a stiff sheath of plastic from his desk blotter around his middle so she couldn't see his breathing. Then he had rung the bell, and the rest was history. When Dr. Chisholm had burst in, Mr. Mullins had still been laughing. He told the doctor why and had been pleasantly surprised when, instead of lecturing him like the spoiled sport he usually was, the doctor had wanted to know all the details and had enjoyed the whole thing immensely. He even suggested carrying the thing one step further. Since he had the girl downstairs in his car, he would take her up and show her that Mr. Mullins was really dead. They would wrap him again. Then, later on, when the girl was once again in the house alone, he, Mullins, would make a second resurrection and scare the living daylights out of her one more time. Dr. Chisholm had left the time and manner of this last reanimation up to him, but when Mr. Mullins expressed doubt as to whether he could lie still long enough for them to wrap him again, he was out of breath even now, the doctor had had a bright suggestion. There was a drug, he said, which would help Mr. Mullins relax completely relax, and would calm his breathing too. He would have trouble moving voluntarily, but for a very short time only. Just a small injection. Then he would bring the little bimbo up, show her that he was dead, and when they moved him around, he would not flinch involuntarily even. At first Mr. Mullins had been a little wary of the whole idea, but the doctor had said, Come on, where's your sense of humour? And of course, Mr. Mullins had risen to that challenge. Succinyl, succinyl something, was what the doctor had shot him up with, and Mr. Mullins had found it easy to lay completely still, just barely breathing all the time they were in the room. What a hoot! Now they were gone, Mr. Mullins tried to move his legs, and he couldn't. He couldn't move them an inch, nor his arms, nor his head. He couldn't even open his eyes and ominously. Even the muscles in his chest were working more weakly even now, when he was free to breathe as deeply as he could. But Dr. Chisholm had promised to come back and wait with him while the effects of the drugs wore off. Mr. Mullins heard two car doors slamming shut and an engine turning over. He fell to momentary thrill of panic. But of course, Dr. Chisholm would have to make a show of leaving. He would come right back as soon as the girl was off the trail. He'd be back in five minutes. Ten at the most. The doctor certainly had congratulated him most sincerely on last night's work, saying that Mr. Mullins could teach those college fraternity boys a thing or two. But he hadn't been too gentle in giving Mr. Mullins that shot in his rump. That had hurt. If that was the young quack's idea of a joke, he would soon find out who he was playing with. No one had ever put one over on Ed Mullins. Wait a minute. Hadn't the doctor said once? A long time ago, that a shot in the rump lasted a long time. The short-acting ones were the ones that went directly into your veins, or was it the other way round? It must be the other way round, Mr. Mullins thought timorously. He couldn't take much more of this. Even under the best of circumstances, he couldn't lie flat for very long before his lungs started filling up with fluid. He slept hunched up on pillows at night. That stuff the doctor had given him made him feel like he had a ton of bricks on his chest. He needed his oxygen badly. He tried to pick up his arm and reach to the side of the bed where the tank usually was. If he could just reach it, 
and then remembered he was now in the other room. He had no hope of getting at it until the drug wore off some, but if anything the effect seemed to be getting stronger. Really, it was very unpleasant, almost unbearable. He couldn't shift himself to get any ease. Lack of oxygen began to confuse his brain, but panic made his mind race. He realised he was in a predicament, lying here in an empty house, wrapped up and left to await the arrival of the mortuary van. If they came and got him, he wouldn't be able to move a muscle to tell them he was alive, not dead. Uh, but that wouldn't happen. That was just plain nonsense. Dr. Chisholm would be back any minute now. Mr. Mullins couldn't open his eyes or turn his head to the wall where the clock was, but certainly quite a bit of time had gone by. Waiting, Mr. Mullins became more and more displeased. Obviously Dr. Chisholm was playing some sort of joke, waiting till the last minute, letting him lie here like this. Most likely he was laughing about it right now over his bacon and eggs. But he would come back. He had to come back. Or Mr. Mullins would give him what for. He'd tell him. He'd tell him. Mr. Mullins whimpered mentally as a panic he could no longer fight washed over him. He'd tell him. It wasn't funny. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back. So that was Mean Mr. Mullins by Kathy Sahu. So Kathy is an author who is alive, as far as I'm aware, and I haven't heard from her for a little while, but she contacted me back end of 2021, uh, wondering whether I'd do this. Um, she actually got me to do it as a commission. So she paid me cash money, not real money. I mean, it was real money, but it, it doesn't, you can't fold it. You know what I mean? That's, to me, my generation, it's, Real money is what you can have in your back pocket of your jeans. But this was electronic money, which still works. You know, apparently I can go. I, I know I'm going to go out later on. I'm going to go to the market at Carlisle and I'm going to have a piece of pizza from the Italians who run the place there. Just a slice pepperoni, I think. You always have the same thing. And a flat white. And I'm going to sit there. And the lady who runs the pizza place is so charming and pretty. And she's always so nice to me. Anyway, this has got nothing to do with the story of me and Mr. Mullins, which is a good story. So Kathy contacted me. She said, would you do my story? I said, of course I would. And then she said, well, you know, what do you think? And I thought, well, it's a pretty good story, you know, and do you mind me putting it out on the podcast? And she said, no, that would be great. And I said, well, in the past when I've done Living Authors, and I probably want to say something about that, I have done interviews with them via Zoom, and the sound quality is often indifferent. So that's one issue. Um, she was, she's a very shy person. So I said, well, listen, what about this Zoom interview? And she kind of, if I may be misinterpreting it, but I thought she, I think he actually said she would rather that she sent me some comments and I would read the comments out rather than doing a Zoom. So that is a long explanation for a, quite a simple thing. Anyway, she sent me some written comments, so I will, I'll read them out. How about that? So Kathy Sahu lives in Alhambra, California a suburb of Los Angeles. I'm probably going to interpolate comments. I remember going to Alhambra, not in uh, Los Angeles, but in fact in southern Spain, in Granada. 
And what a place that is if you ever get the chance to go. But it is very hot. It's going to hot, Spain's the hottest place I've ever been. And I've been to Chiva in the in the desert in the middle of Central Asia. And I've been to Aqaba in, in um, Israel. Oh, yeah, I've been both sides of that, in fact. Eilat and Aqaba and Egypt in southern India and all sorts of places and America and California. And But, you know, Spain, hot, very hot. Anyway... I digress, and, I, and I'm going to try not to do that because it will break up the flow. So uh, Kathy says that she's a lifelong bookworm. She credits her father, who was a bookworm, too. She herself is a retired nurse, wife, mother of four, empty nester, no grandkids yet. Neither we. Now, Sheila's um, sons, who, you know, Sheila's not my first wife, so her, she has a son. She has two sons, and they're just about to have a baby. So Sheila's going to be a grandma, and she, she's very excited but I'm not a grandfather. If my daughters are listening, I actually don't mind if they if they do or they don't, to be fair, but you know. So Kathy, anyway, she created her father, Bookworms. He used to tag along to the public library every two weeks. That's nice. And she credited it to her freshman, sophomore high school English teacher, Sister Bernadette. So that sounds like a good Catholic education there who gave them book lists with all the classics. Now, this is an interesting thing. I was listening to a podcast about this. Is there a canon of literature? Because, of course, in modern literary studies, they deconstruct all of that, and they just say, this is just privileged white people telling you what to read. But, in fact, a lot of the books on the canon are not by white people and probably weren't by privileged people. But the canon, she was given the big list, and in, in the classic sort of Anglo canon when we were younger, when the world wasn't as open and we didn't know about other places as much. Ordinary people didn't. Brontes, Dickens, Thackeray, Nathaniel Hawthorne. See, he probably wouldn't have featured in an English, English um, canon. So just, you know, it's all cultural. And who would tell the stories from the books. Uh, so she, this is Sister Bernadette. And so she would read them the stories. And apparently she was a bit of a cliffhanger queen. And she would just leave them. And then, and then she says, uh, you know, there was only one TV in the house. There's only one TV in our house. We hardly watch it. Um, which was mostly commandeered by my mum. My mother used to watch the TV. She'd watch anything. It's on. I, I remember Wimbledon tennis being on. I was bewildered me why anybody would just watch the ball going tick. Very relaxing, kind of meditative. And she did it with the ironing on. Anyway, as Kathy says, reading is how we develop good writing skills. But it's also really helpful for writers to become good listeners. And she says, I'm quoting her. There I credit first my sister Jeannie. He was a wonderful storyteller, especially of creepy and supernatural stories. Somehow, she had very early mastered what Truman Capote calls the great demanding arc of beginning, middle, end, which is such an important writing skill. A couple of things. Truman Capote, what a writer. Yeah, in cold blood. Whoa. You know, this a breakfast at Tiffany's, of course. But yeah, what a writer. And at the beginning, middle, and end. And you know, a lot of modern stuff kind of, guys, I'm not having that. Beginning, middle, and end? No. We will just give them something they don't like and we will be better than them and they will be morons. I read an article about atonic music. There's this guy saying that the atonic I music that it doesn't is cacophonic, it sounds horrible, has dominated the elite classical music for the past 70 years and it's tr- trash, this guy says. And he wants to bring back lovely, lovely romantic um, tonal music. And, and I think in literature, we had the, the classic Aristotelian beginning, middle and end stuff, the poetics, this is how you write things. And then there was a romantic said, no, we write from our souls. But they still mainly kept the beginning, middle and end, so they didn't ditch it altogether. And then the beginning of the 
20th century, early part, began the Dadaists and the Futurists and the Cubists and all these people, and modernism that busts a narrative. Think of um, T.S. Eliot. I did The Wasteland. I'm not an anti-modernist, you know, I like a lot of it, but I like some uh, atonal music as well, to be fair. I've just been listening to Godspeed You Black Emperor, um, which isn't classical, of course, so people may look down their noses at that, but that's pretty way out there. I really like it. And of course, the Heart- Hartwood Institute. If you listen to Hartwood, uh, Jonathan's pretty experimental uh, in a hauntological way, hearkening back to the 70s. But I like all that anyway. We got the beginning of the 20th century, the modernists going, no, we're not going to have this pattern of beginning, middle and end. And then we get we, this, this filters through as the century advances into popular literature. And we get a lot of modern, particularly people who've been to creative writing courses, I think. They want to write fragments of startlingly relevant stuff and the truth of it is really and I go back to my love of um, rhetoric as Mark Forsyth says in his Elements of Eloquence Shakespeare isn't remembered necessarily because he said profound things that nobody would said before it's because he said them in a beautiful way you know don't just throw shocking ideas into a story a story has to work as a story on language the language has to sound nice and the structure has to be a structure that people find pleasing. So if you just have a, a kind of a, a threatening idea that you want to bat people in the face with, it's not necessarily going to work as a popular story. But your, but your peer group in your creative writing class might think it's very, very wonderful, even if nobody else really likes it. I suppose the theme of this week is anti-snobbery, anti-artistic snobbery. But if you realise it's just human tribes forming groups to exclude others is what we do all the time. It's like a, an essential process of being human. I am in this group, you're in that group, and, and my group is better than your group, and that's what it is. And then if you convince other people, then they get inferiority complexes, and it's all dumb. So, But that's what's going on here. Writers writing stories that are kind of have no real narrative. And, well, and people don't really like it. There's, there's a, a distribution curve. You know, if you do statistics, you have the Bell distribution curve. Most people are in the middle. And so most people like, still like the beginning, middle and end. Anyway, back to Kathy. And Kathy says, and also my mother told me long, long rambling family tales. She grew up during the Great Depression and there seemed to have been a lot of difficulties going on in the family. One grandma in particular picked on my mother a lot. The two of them were always wrangling. Good word, that. But my mother always strove to understand people and why they were the way they were. Again, a great skill. After complaining about her grandma, she'd say, but I never understood how her hard her life had been. So what's that French phase? Yeah. Tout comprendre, c'est tout pardonner. So if you understand everything, you forgive everything. I think there's truth in that. Anyway, back to Kathy's notes. Grandma had emigrated into America from Germany when there was a famine. And from her mother, Kathy always learned to wonder what made people tick and try to see things from their perspective. And she rightly says this is an important writing skill with which to develop interesting and believable characters. Actually a seminal, quote, quote, actually a seminal event in my young life that might have led me to write ghost stories occurred one day when I was about five years old. Our other sister, Mary Beth, had gotten a hold of a record of old British folk songs. One of them had the lyrics... With her head tucked underneath her arm, she roamed the bloody tower. With her head tucked underneath her arm at the midnight hour. So I'm just adding a bit of colour to that. Later on that afternoon, Jeannie and I were alone in our house in our room when she suddenly moaned, I think I'm dying, and sank down on her bed looking lifeless. 
I kind of knew she was play-acting, and I laughed nervously, but all the while I poked and prodded her, saying, Jeannie, ha-ha, wake up, wake up, and looking over my shoulder at the bedroom door because I wasn't quite sure that the lady with the cut-off head was not coming down the hall. Jeannie was really a very nice big sister, and she got up pretty quickly, probably. But I've always remembered that day and that song, and I think that's the point when I got hooked on that pleasurable contrast between being safe, comfortable, and cosy, and being almost really scared. And I think, of course, that Kathy has just nailed there the essence of the ghost story. I need say no more. I need read no more. This is it. And the most popular stories I do with those cosy ones. I mean, How Fear Departed the Long Gallery, for example, is a recent one I've done, which is has a beautiful coziness. And, if, and I keep going back to Twin Peaks, but if one of the, one of the great um, attractions of Twin Peaks, bizarre as it was, was this beautiful, wonderful community where everybody was pretty nice to each other in a small town way and things moved pretty slowly. Everybody knew everybody and they had coffee and cherry pie and there were kind of eccentric locals who were harmless and then there was the unspeakable horror. That's absolutely right. This is the ghost story, that, that switch between the cosy and the horror and those are the most popular stories. Remember the bell curve I was going to say bell jar, but I don't mean that. The bell curve distribution, most people like are in the middle and most people like that kind of thing. Kathy says that her favourite books at high school were Jane Eyre and Lord of the Rings. I've never read Jane Eyre. I've read Lord of the Rings loads for a while. Though. I'll do it before I die. If I, ever, if I thought I was going to die and had the time, I would do that, I think. As she says her favourite American writer is Tom Wolfe. I think his critiques of American culture as we Brits, she says you Brits, but I've got to say we Brits, say spot on. I also think he was a courageous and good man going up against the intelligentsia as he did. This is kind of a bit, a little bit like the atonal music, isn't it? It's, it's the kind of the tyranny of the so-called intelligentsia. And they kind of, it reminds me of this man, my man called Steve, and he went to Edinburgh and he worked in a high fashion clothes shop that actually had a guard at the door, one of those, and he had to have appointments to go in. He was, he's a very kind of bony bloke. Uh, he's the one who was in the lake in the, in the freezing cold water, and he's a great philosopher as well. But anyway, he said this, and at the time, but he was hanging around with artists. He said, who says you're an artist? And they went, we say we're artists. Well, how come you can say you're artists? Because we're artists. And he says, well, I'm an artist. And they went, no, you're not. And he went, well, I say I'm an artist, but, but you're not an artist. And funnily enough, my, my daughter, Imogen, went to Liverpool to do fine art. And she said there was very much of that in the, amongst some of them there that were up their own bums. And, you know, this self-appointed superiority, which none of us really like, do we? I remember when I went to uni, I'd, I'd been there. You may not be surprised to hear this. I'd been in all the school plays and uh, the local paper described my... Tony Walker has a sophisticated talent, so I was like really full of myself. I applied for a drama school in Glasgow and I, I got a place, but I didn't, I didn't actually have any money to go. So I couldn't get a loan or whatever. I couldn't get a grant or anything like that, so I decided not to go. But my life would have been very different if I had. Anyway, I went to Wales instead, instead of Scotland, and I did drama and I, I hated it. The drama, Charmian, was great. The teacher, the teachers were great. The, the lecturers, the professors, what do you want to call them? But the, oh, the students were so full of themselves. They were just striking poses. I don't know what they were saying. They were just, oh, I couldn't bear them. Uh, so uh, I left and did Welsh instead, and my, I've never looked back. We're rambling a long way from Kathy's notes, but we will get there in the end. 
So she says, in her opinion, and fair enough, we take that as read, uh, the greatest English language novelist of all times is Charles Dickens. Well, we like a bit of Dickens. Uh, in her opinion, the greatest horror novel, hands down, is Dracula. The plotting is brilliant. Yeah, I really like Dracula. I've just done, there's a, there's a I've kind of set up this loop. It's not really live. It's a loop that comes out as live on the YouTube channel of my, my Dracula. And it just is going to loop forever and ever and ever, I hope, until YouTube catch me and go, stop that. But they haven't yet. So if you want to hear my version of Dracula, my narration of Dracula, there you go. See, I'm using all of this as a selling point, you know. Don't don't be fooled. Um, this is what I'm really about. Anyway, she says, great ghost story writers, and she lists M.R. James, Tick, J.S. Lefano, Tick, E.A. Poe, although she thinks Poe is more horror, and that's right, but we love Poe's prose, and she really prefers traditional English ghost stories to horror, and I think that's because um, it, we go back to the coziness. Poe is rarely cozy, you know. He's, he's extreme. He's like your goth mate who who insists on biting the heads off chickens and drinking blood from human skulls. I mean, we've all had friends like that, haven't we? But I think the thing is, most of us probably said, no, Sebastian, I'm not doing it. And they just went off to the graveyard themselves. In a similar but quite unrelated way, it was recently when Steve tried to get me to go cold water swimming in a freezing lake and he stood there up to his neck. He had a woolly hat on. He said, that's really important, the woolly hat. I don't know why. No, he did explain why. And I was like, I'm not doing it, Steve. No, no. But I like Poe. Uh, I like the gothicness of it. And that's probably why I like some of Lovecraft's um, and Clark Ashton Smith's and people like this. They're just over the topness of it. But then we have, Lefano's different from M.R. James, really. But M.R. James is the classic, you know, the cosy, the English dream. You talk about the American dream, but the English dream, as John Major, one of our prime ministers said, he talked about the village green, the sound of cricket bats, people hitting cricket bats not on the heads, but against the balls and not just, I'm not describing this very well, you know, playing cricket really, not kind of just hitting things with the cricket balls. That would, it's the order of it and old maids, which we don't say anymore, cycling to even song. So they wouldn't cycle to even song. And there's probably not many even songs now. And the, the dappled light and all of that. And then we have Kenneth Graham's messing about on boats, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Wind in the Willows, Pooh Corner, which sounds quite unhygienic, but things were different then. I mean, poo didn't mean what it means now. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it did. Which is a whole new light on Winnie the Pooh. All of these dreams, swallows and Amazons. It's a, it's a rural dream, really, the English dream. It's a, it's a small village life where it's like Twin Peaks, but without Bob. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe Bob will come into it. Anyway, get back to the flipping notes. Absolutely Best Suspense Supernatural Anthology, Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural, edited by Wise and Fraser, a masterclass, I say master, same being posh, a masterclass, a masterclass for writers in these genres. Probably the greatest modern horror writer is Stephen King, although I would contest that I think he's a fantasy writer like Poe is. He's an incredibly talented writer overall and sometimes reminds me of Dickens in terms of his skill. I'm, listen, don't, you know, I think I've got a lot of time for Stephen King. Um, when he's at his best, that is, yeah. And when he's at his best, he's great. Sometimes he's a bit flaccid. And he is such a great depictor of the lives of children and innocence. I think he is, we're talking about the English dream. There is a particular New England dream, I think, which is pretty similar to the English dream. It is a depiction of small town New England where people know each other and they drink beer bottles on the porch. And it's all very focusing. And unlike 
the English dream being set in about 1819, maybe 1910. I think the Stephen King's dream of Vermont and Maine and places like that is, um, is probably about 1950. And that's probably related to when he was young. Somebody once told me we liked the music that we like when we were 17. I had a job once working for the Campaign for the Protection of Rural Wales, and I used to travel around them, maybe mentioned this, around Wales, and everybody wanted it to be kept. So what were we preserving? And it turned out that the people wanted it preserved as it was in about 1930. So they didn't want to go back to before the enclosures or the medieval period, and they didn't want anything modern. They wanted it as it was when they were kids. So it's maybe just a human thing. So that's why I think why Stephen King... Has has depicts a world that he does. Anyway, back to Kathy. Um, she makes the point that reading fiction, once you know the tricks of the trade, is harder because you see it. You know, it's like being a theatre director and you go into the theatre I and mean, you're looking at the technicalities. I think. Anyway, so what she said is that when she when she writes a ghost story, she gets an idea of something that would scare her. And in and with me, Mr. Mullins, a story we've just read, she thought about how weird it is to be in the same room with a dead body. How we always keep our eye on it, for example, as if it might move. Oh, there's lots in that, isn't there? Uh, next, I can I came up, come up with a plot. This is her speaking that would draw or lengthen that experience, along with a hopefully an aha moment when the protagonist is suddenly confronted with the fearful thing. Then she comes up with the characters, some sympathetic, some unlikable in situations, for them to be maybe at odds with each other for tension and humour. Finally, she says, I like to embed some covert little philosophical or psychological point some moral to the story, if I can, the way my mother always did in her stories. Well, I think the, the stories that resonate with us probably do have a little bit of a, a tale to tell us. They have a lesson, you know, but we have to be subtle about putting it in or else it's boring. And, that, and that's what she's done here. So she says, mainly as I write, I periodically take off my writing hat, so to speak, and put on my reading one. I pretend I'm reading something written by someone else. If the story doesn't make me want to know what comes next, then I know I'm on the wrong track and have to rewrite or even throw the story out. I wrote Mean Mr. Mullins over 20 years ago, she says, when I was on a ghost story kick. Actually, that was the first time I really tried to write. I was about 40 at the time, and my kids were just starting in school, so I had some extra time on my hands. But writing's very hard, as you probably know, she says. Yes, I know. Even when you're not actually writing, you're mulling over and worrying about some plot problem, and it can be very wearing. And I don't have a very good work ethic and I'm easily distracted. So I stopped writing ghost stories for about the next 20 years. About five years ago, I got out my old stories and published them as a collection called Ghosts and Other Unpleasantries available on Amazon. So if you like the story, have a look for Ghosts and Other Unpleasantries and go on Amazon and look for Kathy Sahu, S-A-H-U. So it's not a common name, that. So you should be able to find the Ghosts and Other Unpleasantries by Kathy Sahu on Amazon. And she says, and this, remember, this is the back end of last year, so it's December. In the last year, I've gone back to writing more ghost stories and weird stories. I finished seven pretty good stories, but I'm presently stuck on one that won't seem to fit together no matter how much I try. I wonder if she solved that problem by now. The scary idea I've started with is the urban legend about Mary Worth, but she's not cooperating, and I may have to throw her out of my head. She says, that's about it, Tony. Please feel free to leave most of this out, or for that matter, not use any of it. All I hope for you is that you mention ghosts and other unpleasantries available on Amazons by Kathy Sahu with a C. So I don't know if she's as Catherine or Kathy, but C-A-T-H-Y-S-A-H-U, Sahu. Uh, how else would you pronounce that? She said, oh, you've got it right. I don't know, I don't know how, how else you would pronounce Sahu or something. I don't know. 
There we go, Kathy Sahu. And I can only apologize to her as she has been the victim of my rambling. Uh, the other day, a woman came to see me at work to talk about safeguarding. She's just been appointed to a job and it was the wrong day because she should have come the day before. Not that I'd remembered anyway, but she turned up a pleasant young woman. And um, I start, oh, I'm going to just give her, a, you know, a bit of a quick run through. And then I saw my Huel, uh, you know, this shake, meal replacement shake stuff. So I have one for my lunch because it's easy, really. And there it wasn't, it needed washed. So she came in and I started talking to her and I saw this needed, and I started going to the sink and washing all this up. And I'm like, why are you doing this? Why are you got so distracted? So, but I said to her, listen, I'll just finish doing that. I'll come back to you. And then, and then I kind of sort of mainly tried to focus on what she was doing. We could go off on great tangents from that, even which is ironic, isn't it? But yeah, so there we are. Anything more to say? I tried to contact Kathy recently, but um, it's maybe gone to junk or something. But if she's there, thank you for this lovely story, Kathy. Remember, everybody, Ghosts and Other Unpleasantries by Kathy with a C, Sahu, S-A-H-U. And you can find that on Amazon. So if you would support her. Now, the final thing I want to say is I have moved away from doing Living Authors. And it's because of this bell curve. Because most of my audience want E.F. Benson, M.R. James. There's another tranche who are interested in Lovecraft and Poe and people like that. So there is an overlap. But people want the cosy English ghost story. Now, I, one of these issues is that loads of people do do that. There's horror babble, there's them all. It's done them all. Ian Gordon's done them all. And very well. So, you know, you're like, well, why should I? Why? What's the point of me doing them? Because he's done them so well. And then Jasper Lestrange and his encrypted horror. He's, again, I've got a lot of time for Jasper. I think his, his quality of his work is amazing. So go and listen to both of those. But if I do my left field stuff, so I did um, The Black Wedding by Isaac Bashevis Singer, and I do things like by Thomas Ligotti. I do The Sandman by E.T.A. Hoffman and, and Pushkin's Queen of Spades. And nobody much listens to them. So it's almost like, yeah, you can be, you can express yourself. I've got to walk that line between actually producing stuff that nobody in the world wants to listen to. And YouTube's really good about telling me how long people listen and what they listen to. So the truth of it is the bulk of people who listen, and that is how I get my money, want, they want the old masters and they want the English ghost stories. That's what they like, Lefano and people like that. But they want M.R. James. They want that, they want all of that. Uh, E.F. Benson, M.I. James, those kind of core English things. At least that's my impression. At least that's what YouTube tells me. Now, you may be sitting there going, no, I want you to do a tone poem in Tibetan throat singing. Another thing occurred to me, Gavin Critchley, who commissioned me to do Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> if you listen to my Call of Cthulhu, you know the Cthulhu chant, Cthulhu, Marwage, Fatawan. I did it as a Tibetan throat singing. So he has a he had a little joke with me because a lot of the Lovecraft purists are fanatics in 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 the way that like Lord of the Rings uh, people are you know they're just fanatically gatekeeping this uh, or Star Wars and we're gonna say a little bit about autism there but it's just the way people are wired I mean I've got ADHD they've got autism you know who am I to say anything about them but yeah they do they everything change it must not be so we, we had a little bit of a joke about how my tibetan throat singing um is going to go down yeah and the other thing is oh i'm on a roll is uh, tom hiddleston a number of people comment your voice is just like tom hiddleston's and i'm like thank you thank you 
He's massively successful. He was low-key. He's dead posh. He's dead successful. He was born in Westminster. He's rich. He's, you know, got everything a man could want. I'm not sure I want it, but so it's a compliment. But Tom, I think, is going to be looking at me. You, you what? You're comparing me with Tony Walker. You what? I mean, not that he knows who I am. But, you know, so I'm 20 years older than him. I was born in a remote part of the north of England in a rundown industrial community. Yeah, so I'm not sure he'd take it all as a compliment. But I do. So thanks. Anyway, spread the word. If you like the stories, uh, share them. Please feel free. Tell all your mates. Get them coming on board. I will achieve. I'll be cast as an ex-Loki. If you just push the word out, some agent is going to phone me up and go, Tony, mate, listen, we've got no option but to cast you in, in the next Disney film in our remake of The Beauty and the Beast, and you are going to be playing Snow White. We've twisted the story a little bit. Anyway, okay, enough of that. Take care. Ramble on. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?